Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. Tonight, the sea journey around the world taken by the Lions Rugby Tour in 1950, and the new Maritime Bill and Planning Framework. They're going to manage all marine activities for decades to come. The British and Irish Lions Rugby Tour to South Africa gets underway tomorrow. Not much to do with seascapes, you might think, but back in 1950, the Lions sailed right around the world to tour New Zealand and Australia. The trip took them over six months on a variety of ships. And one young Irish Lion, Jim McCarthy, kept a diary of every day. Jim's son James has his dad's diary. He came into the studio to tell me about that sailing trip right around the world more than 70 years ago. Well, the 1950 Lions Tour Fergal was the last time the Lions travelled by sea. It was actually also the first time they wore the famous red jersey. Um, but it was most memorable for my father because travelling by sea meant it was about a six and a half month trip away from Ireland in 1950 and really the journey of a lifetime. He was a very young man. Who did he play for? He'd, he'd he, been playing for Ireland. But. Well, Jim McCarthy, uh, a Cork man, and he played for Dolphin. And part of that great Ireland Triple Crown and Grand Slamming teams. So himself and his great friend Mick Lane, who's still hale and hearty 70 years later, were selected to travel to uh, New Zealand and Australia on this great tour. What we're interested in, particularly in seascapes, is the journey. They sailed out, they sailed back. They actually went all around the world. They circumnavigated the world. They went out via the Panama Canal and back via the Suez Canal. So each leg of the journey took uh, probably 32, 33 days. These were not seafarers, so it was quite a shock to the system. On the way out, it was a relatively small boat ship. It was. It was the Ceramic, which uh, had capacity for 85 passengers, and that was also a cargo vessel. You, you have his diary, which he kept, handwritten diary still. You're going to read us an extract, some of the instructions they got for their outer trip. So the first instruction they got was, plenty of sleep with everyone in bed by 11.30, except Saturdays. Moderate drinking, with beer acceptable, but keep off spirits. Moderate eating and no more than normal home quantities. Training and PT to get fit and keep fit. And that PE was taken by one of the touring party, Ken Jones, who won a silver medal in the 1948 Olympics for Great Britain. On the way out, they went through the Panama Canal. He was quite impressed by the Panama Canal. He certainly was. So on the 14th of April, uh, his diary entry reads... Approached the Panama Canal from Lyman Bay, passed up through the Gaton Locks, Gaton Lake, the Callard Cut, a channel cut clear through a mountain, Pedro Miguel Locks and Miraflores Locks, where the ship is again lowered to the level of the Pacific. Arrived in Balboa at six o'clock, got taxis into Panama City. We had three dollars per man. Visited the Atlas Beer Garden, where we gave a song over the air. There was plenty of free beer, so it was a rather popular spot with the boys. Went to Kelly's Bar, where Bill McKay insisted on seeing Mr. Kelly, as he was an Irishman also. 
Mr. Kelly turned out to be a very big black man, but after a few songs from us, he also gave us some free beer. Some of the boys went to some very funny spots. Mick, Jack, Noel and I came back to the ship about 2am, picked pears and bananas from the trees by the roadside on the way. Different days. But one of the things that affected them on the way out, there was no priest on board and this was 1950s Ireland. This was a matter of terrible concern for my father in particular and I look at diary entries where himself and his fellow Irishmen, uh, certainly the ones from Leinster and Munster, there was no Connacht men there, were very worried about the absence of uh, spiritual guidance. But the Lord looked after them on the way home because... The ship was joined by four priests who insisted on giving mass at 7 a.m. every morning for the second leg. So no P.E. on the way back, but extra mass. Correct. (laughs) So after the Panama Canal, they headed south and crossed the equator. Um, This is a diary entry from the 22nd of April. Weather terrific again today. P.T. and scrum practice this morning. Team talk after lunch. Today's talk featured Graham Budge's blindside move. Only Budge could figure it out. Tonight was a very, very wild night in the bar and we had our first incident of the tour. Budge played a leading part. The first officer was lucky to escape with his life and it's as well for him, Jack Matthews didn't catch him. They arrived in New Zealand. They got a fantastic welcome. They did. Um, this was, again, 1950, so just post-war, and you can imagine there weren't too many tourists around in these days. The population in New Zealand at the time was about 1.9 million, and in their 23 matches in New Zealand, a total of 520,000 people came to see them. Half the population, nearly. Nearly half the population of kind of match-going ages, as it were. But he had a few diary entries that really explained the popularity of the group and what it meant to the New Zealand people. So this is an entry from uh, not long after they arrived. After dinner, we went to a ball given by the local rugby union and found they had 30 girls there for us. One local businessman, a Mr Newman, is going to send a food parcel to each chap's home. Another presented each member of the team with a new pair of rugby boots. Another is sending a box of apples to each hotel we call on on our tour of New Zealand. And the reference to the food parcel may seem quite funny, but this was a time when there was still rationing after the Second World War. So you can take it that that would have been a very welcome package for a lot of households uh, back then. Your your father, Jim, he was 22 at the time. He was a little bit older, actually. I think he was about 24, 25. But the big thing for him was he was going to be getting married two weeks after he returned from the trip. So um, it was a... Big time in his life. So I don't know if any of those 30 girls uh, had any interest for him. They were hugely popular in New Zealand. How did they get on on the tour? And they they sang their way around the place. Yeah, they... Well, one of the most important parts of their trip out was not only the PT on the deck as they were going out, but choir practice every evening. So they had a repertoire of 20 or 30 songs. And in fact, they recorded an LP in New Zealand uh, when they were there. And they performed at every opportunity. There is an interesting entry actually from the 7th of May, uh, which I'll read out. At nine o'clock, left on a day's outing. First, we called to Motuka, where we had a practice. Half the people of the district turned out to see us, complete with a band. We had a terrific feed here. 
We then went to Golden Bay, where Tasman first landed in New Zealand. Here, for the first time, we met the Maori people in their own district. The girls and boys in their traditional costumes sang and danced for us. We put on grass skirts and gave them a few of our songs and dances. Afterwards, we visited the apple industry of Tasman and later had dinner with the Archbishop of New Zealand. One of the nicest days I have ever had. How did they get on in on, on the tour and in, in the actual rugby, by the way? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did actually have to play rugby. They were beaten um, 3-1 while well, they drew the first test match and then narrowly lost actually three the three other tests. Generally, they won all but two of the other 23 games on tour. So they were a very strong team. They were hugely popular and they played a different type of rugby that was played in New Zealand because they had the great, great Jackie Kyle at out half. So the Lions played a f- style of running rugby against a New Zealand style of strong forward rucking. And I think the forwards probably outdid the backs on that tour. But the Lions were very, very fondly remembered. They were a hugely popular group. Actually, it's quite interesting to read the reference on their last day in New Mm. Zealand. Uh, So this was the 3rd of August when they were leaving New Zealand to go on to the Australian leg of the tour. The hotel was full of different people saying goodbye. And after lunch, we went down to the Wanganella, which was the ship to Australia. It was pouring rain, but hundreds of people turned up and stood there wet to the skin and sang, Now is the hour and Oh Lang Syne as the boat pulled out. There was a band and lots of streamers and everybody felt very sad at at leaving these fine and sincere people. So as you can see, there was a huge affection, I think, uh, in both directions. And the mood, unfortunately, wasn't improved by the crossing of the Tasman because the diary entry shortly after that, 6th of August, crossing Tasman. Lots of seasickness. Please, God, this is the one and only time crossing the Tasman in the MV Wanganella. Now, they were getting paid 50 bob a week. 50 bob, which today is about four euro. And by comparison, the 2017 Lions got about 11,000 euro a week. (laughs) So, um, however, I don't think they had to put their hand in their pocket very often just reading those various diary entries because they were hosted and fated um, all around. They then kind of had a very exciting trip around Australia where they won their two tests. So they were a bit more successful there. But rugby clearly wasn't as strong in Australia as it was in New Zealand. But their trip home then was on uh, a much more substantial ship, the Stratnever, which had capacity for 1,200 passengers. And along the way, they had multiple stops in places like Bombay, uh, Aden. And one of the stops was in what was then Ceylon and now Sri Lanka uh, on the 18th of September. So I'll just read you that diary entry. 18th of September arrived at Colombo Salon at eight o'clock and went in by RAF launch. Mick and I were put in the charge of Mrs. Urquhart, a Skibbereen woman. We spent the morning shopping, bargaining with the chancers at the different stalls. This young chap kept following us with a big snake in a bag. In the end, we agreed to pay him for a photograph. He put the snake around his neck while we took the snaps. <laughs> 
they were obviously then very keen to get home because by the time he came to Suez on, on the last leg of the journey almost he wasn't very impressed Correct. I think the tour was losing a bit of its luster at this stage and probably the prospect of getting married in a few weeks was also beginning to bear down on him. So the entry from the 28th of September, really, as we're approaching the last leg of the tour, reads, We reached the Gulf of Suez with Egypt on one side and Arabia on the other. About 3 p.m. we reached the Suez Canal, but had to wait for three hours for the down traffic to pass out. We started going through the canal at about 6.30 with a big searchlight attached to the front of the ship. It is a very plain, ordinary canal and not a touch on the Panama. Went to bed after dinner. <laughs> so clearly <laughs> he was obviously looking forward to getting home. His, his last entry then, he rode it on the train from Dublin to Cork. Yeah, they finally... The whole trip was really done by sea. So the last leg from, I think, Liverpool to Dunleary and the final. And then he took the train with McLean back down to Cork. And the final entry reads, miles travelled 33,656. Not bad when you're being paid for it. 50 bob a week. He's no longer with us, but he, he did have a very full life. He did. Um, he lived into his 90s, lived long enough to see Ireland win another Grand Slam. <laughs> the friendships he made on that Lions tour lasted a lifetime. And I remember meeting him in London when he was well into his 70s, so f at least 50 years after this trip. I met him on a Friday morning and he wasn't looking great. And he said to me that he wasn't feeling great. And I wondered, should he go see a doctor? And he explained to me, no, he was all right. He had just been out till 2.30 the night before with Kinnamont, who was one of his Lions touring partners at a nightclub in London. You still have his handwritten diary? I do indeed. So it's a great record of a wonderful time in his life. And that was the diary of Lion number 332, Jim McCarthy. A many thanks to James for those readings and for telling us about that trip from 1950. Yesterday, finally saw the publication of the National Marine Planning Framework and the Maritime Planning Bill. These will determine how we run the nearly half a million square kilometres of sea we own and how planning on our coastlines will be run. They're long and not easily read, but you can find them on marineplan.ie. The planning framework sets out in detail, there's nearly 200 pages of it, state policy with regard to all areas of maritime activity for the next 20 years. Plans for fisheries, for coastal communities, natural resources are all there and the two documents represent the biggest legislative change in marine policy for more than a century. Launching the plans at Irish Lights in Dunleary yesterday, the Taoiseach said these programmes represented huge change. First of all, I'd say that I'm absolutely delighted to be here today to preside over what could be called Marine Planning Day, as we are here to launch two huge programmes of change for how we plan and manage our maritime area. With the National Marine Planning Framework and the Maritime Area Planning Bill, we are introducing what will be a step change in how we manage our maritime area. This is a historic development, providing a new way of looking at our relationship with the seas that surround us. The National Marine Planning Framework sets out the planning policies that will shape marine development and activities to 2040, and the Marine Area Planning Bill underpins the new planning system and, crucially, will be a key enabler of Ireland's decarbonisation goals.
At that launch, I asked the Taoiseach about the extent of changes these plans will bring about, but also about the difficulties being experienced by the fishing industry. They've had two large-scale protests in Cork and Dublin in recent weeks. Absolutely, it is a sea change. It's transformative. Uh, because for the first time ever, you know, we not only have a, a marine planning framework, but we have legislation to underpin it. Uh, and it streamlines all of that, because that actually has been problematic over the years uh, in terms of myriad hurdles that people have had to jump uh, to get decisions uh, in, in, in relation to uh, developments on the sea itself. It also embraces the whole... Uh, marine protection space as well in terms of marine protected areas uh, and, and that. And in terms of fishing, uh, clearly Brexit has posed challenges, but I've not only, uh, uh, in addition to this, I've um, opened up a social dialogue now with the, the fishing industry uh, as part of the expansion uh, of social dialogue. So whereas you know, we, met, we met the environmental pillar, uh, the, the, the farming pillar, we've met the fishing pillar now. Um, as part of meeting the challenges that they currently face in respect of Brexit, control plans and so on, but more long-term in terms of how we manage and protect the resource within the sea for the benefit of future generations of fishers. Um, and that is extremely important. Uh, and I, I do take your point, this is a fundamental shift in governmental and state approach to the maritime area. And we're looking forward also to the energy dimension this really enables investment in offshore wind because in investors can see for the first time a clear framework within which they can make decisions, long-term decisions, which are so important when people are, are, are making those kind of decisions. That streamlined planning system for offshore wind has been welcomed by the industry, but it's likely to be the more controversial part of these plans. In his announcement of the framework, Michal Martin set out government thinking behind offshore renewables. In March 2021, we introduced the Climate Action Bill with the aim of achieving net zero carbon no later than 2050. The growth of offshore renewables, in particular offshore wind, will be a key part of our toolbox for reducing our reliance on fossil fuels for energy production. Ireland has one of the best offshore renewable energy resources in the world, given the sheer size of our sea area. Because of our location at the Atlantic edge of the European Union, we have more offshore energy potential than almost all other countries in Europe. We have set a goal of 70% of our electricity being produced from renewable sources by 2030. A corresponding target of 5 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity off our southern and eastern coasts will help us achieve this target. The MAP bill and the NMPF will be the primary enablers to achieve Ireland's offshore renewable energy goals. Enactment of the MAP bill will provide the legislative underpinning and flexibility uh, to allow Ireland to move in a phased manner towards a more centralised, plan-led regime for offshore renewable energy in line with the framework established for marine spatial planning. With all of these programmes coming together, I fully expect to see a huge change in how we manage, protect and enjoy our maritime area. This bill and framework will be key enablers to realising our ambitious decarbonisation targets through offshore renewable energy. But they have been designed to protect and support the activities that are already taking place, as well as our precious ecosystem. I'm acutely aware that at the forefront of our policies, plans and projects around the marine must be the protection 
of our marine environment. The legislation will also establish a new body, the Marine Area Regulatory Authority, or MARA. That will come under the ambit of the Minister for Housing and Local Government, Dara O'Brien. He told me what it would be. Well, MARA it will be a new the Maritime Area Regulatory Authority, which is going to oversee the activities in our maritime area, which uh, Ireland, you know, which is seven times our landmass, which has immense potential, but also needs to be protected. So we need to make sure that where we're we're engaging in new activities offshore, like in offshore renewable energy, like in aquaculture and things like that, they're, they're licensed through one authority, and that will be MARA, the Maritime Area Regulatory Authority, and that will... Uh, come into place uh, in parallel with the legislation that I got agreed at Cabinet uh, this week in, in relation to the, 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 the Maritime Area um, uh, Planning Bill. So it's a very significant change. It will be, I believe, uh, a, a centre of excellence for this where we're going to draw from my own department, uh, Department of the Marine, also the EPA, and we'll have established a new agency where all licence applications will go through them. They will deal with everything from, say, if you want to do something on a beach, if you want to do something in front of your house, right out to offshore energy, maybe even oil rigs if they ever come back again. Well, hopefully oil rigs won't come back, OK, because we're, we're in the space of the offshore renewable energy. But yes, to answer your question, these will be, they'll be a one-stop shop. Foreshore applications will cease once this agency comes in. All those applications for licences will come into Mara. They will be the experts in this space. Uh, I believe there's a real opportunity for us to grow this expertise. We're a maritime nation. We haven't always given the resources behind that, or indeed we haven't used the resources in an appropriate way or to their potential. That's what MARA is going to give us, and that's why it's so important the launch here today uh, and the legislation that we've agreed by Cabinet, which I'm bringing into the Dáil on Wednesday. So uh, MARA will be the single uh, licensing and regulatory authority for activity on the marine or on the foreshore. Our local authorities then will, will also have a role in relation to what we call the near shore. So within three nautical miles of the coastal local authorities will obviously have an input in that space, but one uh, regulatory and one licensing authority. The foreshore licences, just to be completely clear, which are very difficult to negotiate, yeah, they're gone and it will, be, it will be a whole new thing. Yeah, anything that's in the system now, Okay, we'll follow through the system. So if someone has made a foreshore application currently, that will go through the, the, the process as it is. Once, the, one, once the, the legislation is passed and MARA is established, foreshore is gone. Okay, that will be a simpler process? Yes, it will be, and it needs to be a simpler process. Uh, it'll be overseen by experts. It will be a streamlined process because not just in foreshore, but in, in, well, in, foreshore, but in other marine activities, we need to have a, a streamlined approach that's very clear that's concise that's you know that is going to weigh up all the all the matters that relate to an application certainly but it can be done better and it will be done better with the new agency how big is the agency going to be do you know well, well we're going to resource it properly as we well we don't want it too big we want it big big enough to deal with what to deal with what we have we're going to base it in wexford the taoiseach uh, confirmed that today uh, that's where my own department have an office there and we've some very highly qualified people it does need to be resourced, resourced properly and to answer your question seriously, I think with the potential that we have in our maritime area, with the level of activity that takes place there, it will need to be resourced. It won't be a super quango fergal. This will be, it'll be the appropriate size to deal with our level of ambition uh, and it will be resourced effectively. Uh, I hope 
to get, have the agency up and running within a matter of months. I'm, I don't want to wait for the legislation to have to be completed and enacted, and the Taoiseach is supporting me on that too. So we'll see this up and running in a, in a matter of months, maybe in shadow form, and build on it from there. You've also mentioned here today about the insure area and our local authorities to get more power on their own coastlines and three miles out to sea. Well, well, they are with this bill, more power, but with more power comes more responsibility and I want our local authorities to be uh, inventive also and to, to look outwards into our coasts and see how they can... People have enjoyed their coastlines, their beaches a lot more over the last 12, 15 months. What I really want to see is our local authorities playing an even greater role. They do a good job now, but an even greater role and looking, well, what other things can be done in, let's say, in the near shore, as I said, on our beaches and that. So I will be, you know, uh, encouraging them um, in, in, a, in a positive way to do that. Uh, we've, my own local authority in Fingal is 88 kilometres of coastline. Uh, some great activities in some, of the, in some of the areas, but not so much in others. And the local authorities recognise that, but it's an opportunity for them to work with us in really, you know, releasing the potential of our, of our coast and our maritime area. And that was Minister Dara O'Brien. And this is a subject we'd be returning to again and again. Now that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.